This is former World Wrestling Federation superstar Duke the Dumpster Drosy, and you are listening to BBGWrestling.com. It's time to take out the trash. Everybody and welcome to another episode of Hands Off the Merchandise. I am Pablo, and with me is longtime wrestling historian and author of such wrestling books as the WWE Legends book, one of my favorite books of all time, the Ultimate World Wrestling Entertainment uh, Trivia Book, and Pro Wrestling FAQ. I have with me Brian Solomon. Hello. Hi, Pablo. How are you? I'm good. This is kind of, it never ceases to amaze me because, you know, doing this podcast, because I get to interview names that have been a part of my life for like 25 years and just like magazines, etc. And then I get to put a name to the face, you know, like I did with Keith Elliott Greenberg, who has a magnificent beard. I didn't expect that from him. Very Jesus. Um, like yes <laughs> and he, he's very profit like as well he's very wise yes. um when you speak to him uh, and i got to meet him in new york when i was out there for the day he made he was filming something for tv and he was like oh yeah we'll go for lunch and i was just like brilliant okay fine um and tom is one of the nice tom buchanan one of the nicest people that you could uh ever want to meet as well so yeah no, I'm, I'm extremely honored to be able to uh to be able to chat and we'll get nerdy and everything else uh just just based on your legends book i can you know you're obviously a historian and an absolute nerd as well which is which is amazing so um in terms of writing like how far back do your roots go as a writer what made you want to get into writing and you know you have written other things as well such as a book about uh, godzilla um so what were your early interests as a writer? Well, I've been writing ever since I was a kid. I mean, I used to just do it for fun. And I, I had family members that encouraged me, which I always think is so important when a kid gets validation for what they're doing. You know, I had an uncle in particular, my uncle Pete, who always took my writing seriously and 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 made me really believe that one day I could make a living doing it. You know, and I, I got an English um lit degree in college and I was just kind of I started out like a lot of people do I guess writing for the school paper I wrote for the high school paper I wrote for my college paper in fact I had my first wrestling column in my college newspaper I had to convince them that it was something that was worth doing it was called um, wrestling lowdown which I stole I stole the name from WWF magazine which had a column called lowdown in it this Completely is true stole yeah. it uh, just from there, I mean, I, I was uh, covering indie wrestling in Brooklyn, where I grew up, uh, for the local neighborhood newspaper. Um, just it started as a pipe dream, you know, and I would start to send my clippings out to different wrestling magazines and different newspapers that had pro wrestling sections in their sports section, like the New York Daily News had. And I really got no bites, nothing. Uh, but after college, though, I, I did get a writing job. I was working for a company called H.W. Wilson doing like um, reference book publishing, you know, encyclopedia kind of stuff. And um, lo and behold, a couple of years after that, when I was looking to move on, WWF just happened to be looking for a copy editor. So just on a 
whim, just for a lark, I, I sent an application just thinking, what the hell? And I got the job. And so what, what I planned on, you know, because I'd given up on that. Wrestling was just sort of this fun thing I did when I was a kid. And then I had moved on from it. But then it became my career. So were you um, so you grew up obviously watching wrestling in the Northeast. But yes. was was this I'm guessing like the mid to late 80s? I don't, I don't want to just presume upon your age. <laughs> no, that's fine. I I, um, I mean, I was a kid through the whole Hulkamania WrestleMania explosion in the mid 80s. And so I remember being aware of wrestling. I started I, I would call myself a fan starting in 1987 which in the build up to WrestleMania three. That's when I really got into it. But I mean, I have memories of wrestling Going back way before that, I remember um, when I was in kindergarten. I have I have a pretty freaky memory. I went to a Catholic school in Brooklyn, which used to have WWF cards in the youth center gymnasium back then. So I'm talking like 1979, and I remember on the first day of kindergarten because I'm scared as hell, and they're giving us a tour of all the facilities. We walk through the youth center, and there's this giant poster that was advertising. WWF coming to Regina Podgers Youth Center, um, Greg the Hammer Valentine versus Chief J Strongbow, who's trying to get revenge for Valentine breaking his leg. Mm -hmm. And this was like, I'm, I'm four years old, okay? This like blew my mind. What is this? You know, what is this about? You know, I didn't really get into it yet, but I mean, it was, it was, the seed was planted in my brain. But, and then when Hulkamania and WrestleMania got big, I remember all the kids talking about it at school, but it was WrestleMania three, Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant that really like sucked me in and made me want to watch it every week. That, that's a pretty big revenge match for such a small uh, venue. <laughs> they used to do that. You know, b before they went national, the WWF and the Northeast had a lot of these what they called spot shows where um, you could talk to a lot of people from this part of the country and they'll tell you, yeah, when I was a kid, I saw Andre the Giant in my high school gym. Like there was a lot of that going on uh, in a lot of local local gyms. Yeah, they stopped. Jaffa, Jaffa Mosque and places like that. That's uh, those, uh, yeah. yeah, those kind of places always stick out to me from when you hear Howard Finkel talking about the tour coming up. It was always like Jaffa Mosque, this high school, you know. And, right. yeah. and you would you would hear Regina <laughs> Potter's Youth Center. That was mentioned a lot. But they stopped once they really went national. Those kind of shows got phased out by the end of the 80s. Did you, in the way that when I talked to a lot of friends who lo loved wrestling in the early 90s in this country, I mean, I always say that when you know, WWF sold out Wembley Stadium, it was just as big in the early 90s, if not bigger in the UK than it was during the Attitude Era, because we had a, a, the wrestling album, the WrestleMania album with Simon Cowell, etc. And it was huge when Sky made a merger and then... A lot of people remember Hogan and Warrior at Mania 6 because that was the first big Sky pay-per-view event. Um, and then a lot of people kind of dropped out in the mid-90s. And then WrestleMania 14, because of the Tyson involvement, drew a lot of people in and you could feel things grow again. So even though WWF was huge by 1987, was this? did it really feel like it, it was becoming a part of a lot of people's radars for Mania 3, like there was something really unique and special about it, other than just the main event. Yes. I mean, WrestleMania 3, and, you know, I don't know, maybe Keith or Tom might have said similar things, because especially Tom, Tom was there. I mean, Tom was in the roof of the Pontiac Silverdome taking photos down on the— He took that famous picture, didn't yeah. he? The, yeah. yeah, he did. He took the famous picture. See, here's the thing. You know, when Vince went national or began going national in late 83, early 84, and with Hogan and then building the first WrestleMania, they were trying to create this 
this concept that the WWF is a national company, but they were not yet. They were just trying to kind of project that image and be seen in a way that was bigger than what they really were. Now, by the time they got to WrestleMania three, they had actually achieved it. That event is like the tipping point where WWF really and truly had conquered North America in terms of professional wrestling. It was like, you know, the territories were pretty much dead by that point, except for Crockett, of course, which was like going to war with him. And, um, they, they, it really was the beginning of an era. WrestleMania three really was the moment when they, when they took over everything. Were you buying the WWF magazines at that point? Did you buy the ones in the, uh, the seventies, that little run of WWF magazines? I got them. I found them later. And in fact, I actually talked, I didn't even know they existed. So, so first part of your question, I did read WWF magazine as a kid, which is why it was a huge kick when I'm actually running the magazine because I, I used to read it as a kid. The first issue I bought, August 1987, the baby face Ken Patera on the cover with uh-huh. his little brown. <laughs> that was my first issue. But later on, okay, uh, I discovered the WWF magazine uh, of all places when uh, in Freddie Blassie's house. When, oh. when, when Freddie passed away, um, his widow, Miyako, and asked some people from the company to come and help her go through his things because I think she was looking to sell some things and she needed to know. You I know, remember what, this. I remember some stuff ending up on eBay and I, I was too young to have any kind of money to afford it. But, you know, be like Oh two Oh three. Mm. And I helped with that. They wanted me there cause I was like the resident know-it-all. So they had these, there were executives there and then there was me just like digging through everything. And when I was going through stuff, I basically found his entire wrestling magazine collection. So what oh. he had done as the narcissist that he was, he <laughs> saved every single wrestling magazine that he ever appeared in. Going back to when he was a wrestler in the United States Navy in World War II, he had the naval, the official naval bulletin with him on the cover. So he had every magazine that all through, you know, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever, anything he was in, he had it. And so a couple of things he had were those WWF magazines. And recently, when I was working on my book about the Sheik, I interviewed Les Thatcher, who was the publisher of that thing. Mm-hmm. And I always thought it was so random. I'd look in the masthead and think, Les Thatcher? Like, this guy's like the Zelig of wrestling. I don't get it. Like, he's done, he's been everywhere. And I finally got to pick his brain about that and how it happened. They had a publishing company. Uh, out in, I guess it was Cincinnati or wherever he was based. And they were doing contract work for a lot of wrestling promotions in other parts of the country that didn't have their own printing apparatus. So that, but, but that's a fascinating magazine. A lot of people don't realize there was a WWF magazine in the seventies. Didn't last long, but there was. The, the covers are beautiful as well. The all uh, like painting, like artists uh, renderings, the one of uh, Billy Graham, carved into the mountain and all the wrestlers are climbing up the mountain and everything. And uh, the first magazine is, it's interesting because it's entirely in black and white. And then I think it's either the first or second magazine where Gorilla Monsoon, who's one of the, the chief editors, I, I believe uh, he has a column right at the beginning of the magazine. And he apologizes that they didn't really have the budget for, <laughs> for any color sort of pictures at the time. But they were able to do that going forward. It's just unbelievable that a WW, you know, I know it was the late seventies and WWF was a much smaller company, but for them to almost apologize for not having the budget for something just seems 
crazy. Uh, I even have this uh, thing that Blassie that Blassie had in his collection, which was, um, you know, how WWF would always do those superstar magazines where it would basically be all it was was just spotlights of everybody on the roster. You know, yeah. they they did one like around 1979, 1980, if you can possibly believe it, before they had their own magazine. And I, I forget who published it. It was not Les Thatcher. I think it was, oh, the name is escaping me, another guy who did a lot of wrestling work back then for a lot of different companies. I wish I had it in front of me. But, I mean, you're talking about, it's basically a WWF Superstars annual Except with guys like Bruno San Martino, Larry Zabisco, Tony Gurria, you know, the Wild Samoans, Bob Backlund. It, it's it's an artifact. It's amazing. Oh, I would, I would love to see that. Full color. Well, see, that reminds me of the um, – they did five of them. Oh, no, they did seven or eight. They did the Superstars yearly um, magazines that were like a full page dedicated to a wrestler. Yeah. Uh, I think they started in like, like 89 went all the way through to – I want to say 93. The one that the thing that I love about the 1993 uh, edition, which I think was the final one, that there's an entire page dedicated to the Macho Midget. Um, <laughs> like they cover the entire roster, you know, and no one's left out at that point. Okay. <laughs> um, so when um, when did you become on WWF's radar? Like, how does a job like that? make it out there i mean now when people see you see it on the website now people they are looking for writers etc but how did it work back then it was the most mundane thing you could imagine <laughs> um i was i was working kind of an entry-level writing job like i mentioned hw wilson i had just been married so i was looking for something better better money my wife came to me one day and she said you know that in the new york times classified the actual like printed back right. in Days that I don't the New York Times doesn't even have a printed classified anymore. She said they are looking for copy editors. And I'm like, are you serious? I opened it up and there was in the middle of the New York Times classified the big WWF scratch logo. And you didn't really see that a lot back then. You know, the internet was not really a thing. It was it existed. It wasn't really a place you went to to look for work. And um I applied just out of the blue. And it wasn't for a writing position, it was copy editor. And it was copy editor for creative services. So can this you was, explain? Can you explain what a copy editor is? It's a glorified proofreader, basically. Right. <laughs> you don't want to say proofreader. So, um, and this was for creative services. So, like, they'd be looking for anything creative services created. So, T-shirt designs, logos, ring aprons, any kind of like you know materials like that. They needed a copy editor. But what I later found out was there was kind of um, a war going on between the creative services department and the publications department where they were, they both needed copy editors because Vince Russo had just left. He had just went to WCW. And in addition to writing television, he also was the head of publications. So, excuse me, he had left a big vacuum there and he'd taken some of the staff with him. So they, they needed to fill those roles. It was a whole new regime. So when I came in an interview, it was this weird power struggle where I got interviewed by the heads of both departments. So I had to go in. I, I, I went in four different times. I want to say between October 99 and like January 2000. And I had forgotten about it because I think they gave the job to somebody else, the copy editor job. 
And then they contacted me again because they needed an assistant copy editor. So I was like the backup person. <laughs> so I got my foot in the door that way. And to be honest, I didn't have any experience doing copy editing. I was just a writer. Like I bluffed my way in there. And once they realized what I could do, that I could write and that I also knew all about the product, they very quickly, I want to say within a year, less than a year, they shifted me to a staff writer spot instead on the magazine. As a uh, copy editor, what were some of the most egregious uh, mistakes that you had to? <laughs> well, the worst thing you ever wanted to get was the video game um, like booklets, instruction booklets. You could drive yourself crazy on these <laughs> because they're like they're like the length of the Bible, you know, and, and they're filled with mistakes because the people who write them are not people working for the company. So they don't know the proper names of everything. They don't know what gets a trademark, what gets a register mark. And I remember they actually ribbed me when I started there because they gave me to do over the weekend this massive like book of, uh, you know, that contained all these different video game cheats and everything for WWF and told me I had to get it done over the weekend. And without blinking an eye, and I actually did it. I spent my entire weekend going nuts with like a with like a highlighter pen and like just like fixing every single error in this crazy thing. And I came back on Monday, and they told me it was just a joke. Uh, which, <laughs> you know, I knew they did that in the locker room. I didn't think they did it in the office, but apparently they do. But overall, a very welcoming uh, team, would you say? And uh, after Russo left, were, were there any sort of stories about, what, was it a nightmare working with Russo? And then once he was gone, it was like, oh. <laughs> that is exactly what it was like, precisely. Now, I, I never worked for him. I never knew him. I've never met him. But I worked with a ton of people who did know him very closely and worked very closely with him, and they all hated him. <laughs> they hated they hated working for him. They hated working with him. He drove everybody nuts. Um, he created such a pressure environment, like a this is just my you know hearsay, toxic environment. That when he was gone, there there definitely was a relief. Um, there was a guy named Barry Werner who had been the sports editor for the New York Daily News, which was a very prestigious position because the New York Daily News, especially at that time, had one of the best sports sections in the country in, in journalism, period. Mm -hmm. And they, they brought him over and he initially, what they wanted him there for was at first he was somebody that could kind of run the day-to-day -day operations while Vince Russo was doing television. And um, then when Russo left, he became the publisher. They put him in charge and he went to work basically trying to re, you know, configure the department and, and put new people in and make some changes and things like I know a couple of things he did was he took some of the kind of inside wrestling people that he didn't think were quite up to snuff for what he wanted in a magazine like uh, Kevin Kelly and Dennis Brent and people like that that had been tight with Russo that were wrestling people, but he wanted magazine people. That's what he wanted. So like he started to change things up a little bit. He brought in a guy named Mike Fazioli who had been um, a managing editor for um, ESPN, the magazine. So he brought him in, things like that. And, and, he, and, and, he, and he just he just wanted uh, to kind of make it a little bit more legit, I think, and less of a kind of like uh, – makeshift you know wrestling 
old school like wrestling magazine. He wanted to kind of reinvent it a little bit. So legit in um, in what sense? More um, appealing to non wrestling fans. Like, not necessarily. Not necessarily. But I think what he wanted was um, a staff that had more experience, not just in wrestling, but also in writing and in journalism. That's what he wanted. So a little, a little bit more professional. And that's just my take on what I think he wanted to do. I'm great friends with Kevin and with Dennis. I think they're great guys. I do think there was a little bit of bitterness when they got kind of like pushed out of the magazine a little bit, especially because Dennis Brent was very close with Jim Ross. And that's how he had his job at WWF. And he, he was a great guy. And his wife, Lynn, uh, worked in talent relations. Um, they were great. But Barry really wanted more kind of like sports people, journalism people, people that really had chops, not just people that had the wrestling credentials. That That's really what it was. So in terms of uh, choosing stories for a magazine, because um, there the weren't, you know, things were shifting away from that sort of, I mean, things had shifted away from that new generation period as well, where a lot of photo shoots were done in character in terms of like, to establish the character, like when Hunt Hurst Hamsley tried to teach Mantor table manners and all that kind of thing. <laughs> we um, love that stuff. Love. <laughs> um, what this seemed to me, I guess, more of a, an attempt to report upon um, real life happenings. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, because it's kind of it is a fine line to not break kayfabe in a wrestling magazine or in a WWF magazine, but also report on real life happenings as well. So did, were there rules placed upon you in terms of what you could do? And it, let's say you wanted to interview um, the Dudley boys or something like that. Um, did you just suggest it? And then, you know, you they give them a call. They come to the office or whatever. Like, how did something like that work? Well, we would walk the line. So we had the two magazines when, when I started, which was WWF magazine and Raw magazine. Mm-hmm. And WWF magazine was the more storyline based magazine where we our job was to further the characters portrayed on television. Not so much the angles because we had a long publishing delay. So sometimes things could be out of date, but just to strengthen what was on television. Whereas with Raw, it was more about real life stuff, but it was. It was a mix. It was basically we called it a work shoot magazine. It was never really a shoot. So we would write about the wrestlers real lives. We would write about other companies besides the WWF where other wrestlers had come from and things they'd done. We wanted it to be a little more hard hitting, a little more for a more mature fan, but not in the way that Russo had done it. The way Russo had done it was he had made raw like sex and violence. Like that's the way he saw the mature audience. And what happened then is of course, nobody wanted to carry the magazine advertisers running for the Hills. So Barry was that's, a lot. That's more, what happened. That's what yeah, happened with that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Barry was a lot more pragmatic. And even though I don't think the advertisers ever fully came back, Barry wanted the magazines to be more than just marketing tools, which is what they had been. They had been ways to further the product. Nobody really cared if they made money or not. Barry wanted them to become profit centers. So he restructured it and he made Raw into a little bit more of that kind of like really for a mature fan, but who is interested in still reading about the business. However, it still was worked. You know, we did not talk about matches being 
prearranged. We never talked about that. You know, titles were won in the ring. You know, matches were real. Competition was real. We never, you know, we would talk about guys adopting personas and things like that, but we never came out and exposed the true nature of it. That would have been counterproductive for us. So we walked a little bit of a line there. We wanted to give the illusion of a shoot magazine without really being a shoot magazine. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it, I'll never forget because I, I still have it. And also, the first Raw magazine doubles as the WrestleMania 12 program um, with a few extra pages, and is incredibly rare. The first three Raw magazines also were WrestleMania, SummerSlam, and King of the Ring programs. Um, and there's very little difference apart from a few extra pages. Um, and you wouldn't be able to tell just by looking at the cover, pretty much. But. Um, I was 11 years old when that magazine first came out and it had the sunny photo shoot and just it, my mom was like, is this wrestling? Are you sure? Because <laughs> like, you know, the thing is, there was no age restriction on it, but it did say for the for the mature fan. And there right. were times when I had to argue that at, at, in the store to be allowed to have it. And um, I think somewhere on there, it might have said recommended for 16 years and older or something like that. I, I think, think it you're right. I think you're right. But again, though, you could you could argue that, you know, um, if you wanted to. And, and the thing is, as well, but the early Raw magazines were very combative when you have Russo writing his article, kind of putting himself to the forefront as a writer, uh, but also as a character. And then you have Jim Cornette, basically the polar opposite. I mean, you know, as he has been for decades now, but then somewhere in the middle, there's Jim Ross writing stuff that's Keith Elliott Greenberg and and it really was it was contemporary but in a sense that in some ways it's very dated now like the early earliest raw magazines the, especially the Russo articles um and especially because he would write as he spoke which made it a very hard read sometimes yeah, I know <laughs> Um, I know we the copy editors would cringe <laughs> about the stuff that he would submit because, look, um, the magazine in the early days had a lot of attitude and it had it definitely had a viewpoint. You could never say it didn't. It was basically Vince Russo's mouthpiece. It was yeah. his vanity project. And he projected his views out into the world with that. Whereas under Barry and under Mike Fazioli and then later other people that ran Raw Magazine, um, it became like it, it, we no longer wanted it to be just one person's view. We wanted it to be more of a collective effort. So like Barry and Mike and people like that never really put themselves out there as characters the way that Russo did. And, you know, we wanted the magazine to kind of speak for itself a little bit more. We made it into something a little different still for the mature reader, but no, but no longer for the same reason that it was. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And some of the um, articles, you know, such as at home with uh, the Hardy Boys and stuff like that, just giving a, a glimpse into people's lives as well. Again, without breaking kayfabe, which is a fine balance, it it was incredibly well done. You know, I, I've I would say that I watched WWE WWF really hardcore until around about 2004, and then I kind of I think it was when the Diva Search magazine came out. I was just like. Oh. <laughs> there comes a point, you know. Um... We were forced to do that. We really forced <laughs> to do that. We knew we were going to take a bath. It was one of those things where the philosophy, again, of what the magazines were came into conflict because we saw it as we're going to try to sell as many magazines as we can. We're trying to make money. Yeah. But from up top, sometimes you would get the, the idea, well, you guys have to take the fall here. This magazine 
may not sell well, but we're trying to promote this concept. We're trying to promote this brand. And so you need to fall on your sword and promote this, even if the sell through tanks this month. It was tough. Well, I guess that's what happened with, I mean, we're jumping ahead a little bit because I want to cover some more stuff, but um, the same thing I'm guessing happened with the SmackDown magazine as well, which, I mean, a lot of people, I guess, don't remember that there was a SmackDown magazine as well as a Raw magazine, but... I guess you kind of you split your audience in two if there's definitely going to be a magazine that doesn't cover your favorite wrestler at all because he's on the other show. Like, did you yeah. did you find that? Was there like a frustration with the Raw and SmackDown magazine? There was a lot of frustration. I fought hard against that. What, what happened was, so when Mike Fazioli left, uh, Mike Fazioli had been managing both Raw magazine and WWE magazine. So when he left, the roles were split. I was given WWE Magazine, which was a dream come true, and Aaron Williams was given Raw Magazine to run. And uh, we were, like, excited. We were going to do big things. I was like, you know, oh, my God, I'm running this magazine I used to read when I was a kid. And it was about two months later that we were told that WWE Magazine was going away. And I couldn't believe it. So it was frustrating because all of a sudden, you know, because I got SmackDown Magazine, all of a sudden I'm running this magazine nobody wants nobody's heard of <laughs> nobody cares about and we're we're tanking a brand that's like coca-cola and we're flushing it down the toilet so what the reason that happened is simple they did the brand extension in 2002 we still had wwf wwe and raw magazine through 2002 right i think into 2003 no i Definitely. think it was a I remember 04 being I, I was I did buy some SmackDown magazine. I remember the Diva Search magazine being the moment and that was 04, I think. The, the change happened at the end of 03. And the reason it happened was somebody, there was somebody in some board meeting, I'm not privy to who it was, but somebody said, you know what? We did this brand extension, right? Where we've got two rosters, two shows now. We have a raw magazine. How come we don't have a SmackDown magazine? And we fought hard because we're trying to say, well, that's not what it was. Raw Magazine never was just about Raw. It was Raw. We used the name Raw because we already owned that name. But it was this, the attitude, the spirit of the magazine was Raw. It had nothing to do with the show Raw. So, in fact, so what they did was they painted us into a corner because they wanted Raw Magazine, the shoot magazine, to turn into a worked storyline magazine just about the Raw talent. And then SmackDown would replace WWE and turn into the same thing, a worked storyline magazine based on the storylines and characters of SmackDown. We thought this was a disastrous idea. We really did. Right up to the top, Barry, everybody. We were just forced to do it. Forced. Even the people that advised us on sales figures, outside advisors and consultants said, do not do this. Didn't matter. We were forced to do it. SmackDown Magazine was my baby. I tried to run with it and make it the best thing I could from the very beginning of it at the end of 2003 to the end of it in the middle of 2006. I was the one and only managing editor of that magazine. I oh, was sorry. Editor. I feel like I'm offending you when I say <laughs> no, that. I, <laughs> no. I tried my best to make it the best product I could make it I, I, without ever fully believing in it. You know, that's the problem. I wanted it to be great because it was my job, but I never, I didn't, I didn't think it should have ever existed. There's only so many compelling articles you can write about Mordecai, 
Um, I, I, and we did. <laughs> you did, and I remember that it was the cover with RVD on the front, and it was a really cool cover. And I remember one of the articles was "Who is Mordecai?" and I'm like, "Who cares who Mordecai?" <laughs> yeah, that RVD cover was fun. We went to California to do the photo shoot for that story. We went to his. He has a um, a dojo, not his dojo, but where he, because he lives, I guess, in Costa Mesa, California, which is this nice, real like suburb of Los Angeles. Very laid back, low key, exactly where you'd expect RVD to live, you know. And um, and we did this shoot. We we did like a, it was supposed to be like a Bruce Lee type of you know Enter the Dragon sort of thing with him. And I got I went out there for that. That was a fun trip. It was really cool. I mean, okay, so something that happened earlier on in that yeah, obviously you know because Freddie Blassie is one of my favorite personalities of all time. Um, I have the album, you know, <laughs> um, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I have the new action figure. It didn't come out in this country. So I had to spend like scalpers prices just to have it shipped over. Um, do you have to fight for something like the Freddie Blassie magazine cover and like a 10 page article because it's not going to appeal to kids, basically something like that on the cover? Well, I'll tell you the truth. I, I love Freddie Blassie. I was a huge fan and he was one of the people that I wanted to make sure that I tried to meet when I went to work there, you know, because he was still alive and he wasn't he was retired, but he would come in every now and then to the office and he would play Santa Claus at the Christmas party and things like that. And uh, when he died, you know, he was like a family member to them, to the McMahons. And to be honest with you, as much as I loved him, that was also not an issue that um, the people that ran our department were that excited about doing because, but, but, but they agreed to it because they knew how much he meant to them. Cause we knew it wasn't going to sell very well. I mean, I loved it. I was all about it. Cause I love black, too. but yeah. I remember other people not being that psyched about it cause they knew it wasn't going to sell well and it did not sell well. Um, that it wasn't going to do well with the typical readership of our magazine, you know? Um, but we went ahead and we did it, you know, because we were asked to do it and, and it was out of respect for Freddie and because, you know, he deserved it. And, and Keith was writing, Keith had just written his ghost, written his biography with him. So, you know, we, we put an excerpt of that in there. Um, I mean, I'm glad we did it, but we knew it wasn't going to be a huge seller. I, I love the, um, I mean, I love the, the magazine. It's one of my favorites just for the cover, but I love the, the amount of uh, page space that is given to Freddie in that magazine particularly mm-hmm. um, and uh, when Keith, uh, when they released the paperback uh, version of Freddie's uh, book after he passed away, they go into that final roar um, when him and the Dudley boys, Devon get the tables and everything and um, it was just, it was so emotional to read because like if, uh, Keith asked Freddie because he's sticking his tongue out and he's kind of, he looks like he's kind of you know, maybe not all there sort of thing because he, he's getting on in age at that point as well. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm just being in character. I'm being a Dudley boy for the night. And I was just like, that's wonderful. Like just a, a worker until the end, Freddie Blassie. Um, so in in the late night, one thing I noticed, and I'm I'm just flashing back now because there was a there was a female writer called Laura who seemed who came came in around the time that you did because I remember the names being kind of in the magazine a lot and i remember there was a photo shoot where laura got put through the table by the dudley boys um (laughs) so where where did she come from and what happened to her like and was it kind of because it was unique having a female writer on staff for the magazine laura bryson um she had been vince russo's assistant 
And when Vince Russo left, she was put in charge of WWF magazine. Um, I wasn't there when that happened because Russo left in October 99. I came in February 2000. So when Barry took over, he gave um, because Vince Russo had been basically running both magazines. And I think if I remember right, I think Kevin Kelly was managing Raw magazine for him. And I'm not sure who was doing WWF. I'm really not sure. But um, Barry put Laura in charge of WWF magazine and hired Mike Fazioli from ESPN to run Raw magazine. And so when I started there, she was running the magazine. She was in Vince Russo's office and in the publications department, um, the whole thing. I don't know how, how that happened. I don't know if that was Vince Russo's decision or if it was Barry's decision, uh, but she she was, um, yeah. And then when, when she left, um, Mike Fazioli took over both magazines. She, she didn't seem to be there too long. Um... No. Uh, especially not in that role, I would say probably, um, oh boy, let's see, maybe a year, a year and a half, maybe, because when, because we moved from the first floor, from the second floor to the first floor, um, at the end of 2001 and beginning of 02, and she was already gone by then. So it, I think it was really just 2000 and 2001. That's when she was running it. It, it did have a bit of a Rousseau hangover feel to it because she was involved almost in, in, with storylines in the magazines. I remember St Stevie Richards would have the article in the back of the magazine. I don't know if he wrote these or not, or like if any of these guest wrestler editors, he did write it. Um, oh, well, he wrote the tribute to Spicoli, didn't he? Um, in, in the magazine one month. That was really emotional. Because um, he's like, oh, Laura, I know you're in love with me. You took me out to dinner and stuff like that. It just... I'm just like, what storyline is this in it, you know, for? <laughs> like he's gonna... well, you may not believe this, but they were engaged. Right. Okay. Okay. They were engaged. My uh, mind is blown now. Okay. There we are. Okay. <laughs> they broke it off. They broke it off. But um, Stevie and Laura were engaged. In fact, we, we used to see him around the office so much. And we're thinking, wow, Stevie's hanging out here a lot with us. He would hang out in the office and talk to everybody and just submit his columns and everything. And then we discovered that he and Laura were seeing each other. We really didn't know in the beginning. Um, I went to their engagement party. Um, they broke it off. I, I think there's even a column that Stevie wrote, one of the Get in Heat columns after the breakup, that if you didn't know the behind the scenes, you wouldn't get it. But it's it's all about how much fun it is to be single and not to have anybody to <laughs> answer to or something like that. Uh -huh. and it was like a, a shot at her or something. I, I don't think it ended that well, but uh, that's what happened. Yeah. My mind is blown. It really is. Um, yeah. So um, in 2006, then, you know, something had to change basically. And it's WWF or WWE magazine got relaunched at that point. And I remember Vince talking about it on one of the Bite This shows that, and but to be honest, that it seemed like Vince was putting the blame on the magazine staff because he was like, right, I want a magazine that talks to, not talks down to the reader. And it's like, well, Vince surely is the person who approves this in the end. I mean, I'm guessing he had no say in the magazines until he saw the sales plummet or something. Yeah, we... Uh when when we were working for Shane, 
because we felt when Shane came off the road after the invasion angle and he was put in charge of publications. So Barry reported to him and we were really plugged in at that point. So 2002 and after I would sometimes be in board meetings with Vince, like pitching magazine ideas, which was really not a good idea, you know, because he had a lot more important things to do. But because Shane was running it, Shane would put us in that position, you know, and he was trying to make his dad happy and all this stuff. And we were kind of caught in the middle. So Vince, it was weird. There would be times where Vince would definitely have to approve things. Like I remember one time we had to mock up like 40 different covers to get him to just pick one. But then there were other times where he would have no idea what we were doing. Things would just fly right under the radar. Like I interviewed Randy Savage once. No one knew I did it. I remember this. It was like 2004. They knew. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't remember this, that there was a new Randy Savage interview in a magazine mm-hmm. at it that was, time. Yeah. It was when his rap CD came out. <laughs> we yeah. reached out to him. And I'll be totally honest with you. We knew nothing of any kind of heat that he had or any kind of rumors or whatever. We knew nothing. We really did. And um, no one stopped us because why? Nobody knew we were doing it. Simple as that. We just did it. And there really wasn't a lot of supervision at times. I remember being on the phone with him and he because I did the interview and he asked me, does Vince know that you're talking to me right now? Does Vince know that you're talking to me right now? (laughs) And I said, no. And he started laughing. You know, he just couldn't believe it. And um, that was the last time I believe he ever spoke to anyone in the company ever. It was me. Um, But. So so anyway, th- to your question, like, with, do, with, do you f- do you feel sorry when you have Randy? Do you feel that you should have done more with him at that point? Oh yeah, I mean, it was you know, I I I made sure the interview was about way more than just the rap CD. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to him about everything. So I I think it's a pretty good interview. We talked about a lot of other things in there. We talked about his dad, everything. You know, I tried to get everything in there. Um, but you know, I I'm glad we had we had more freedom than I think people realize. Uh, but I, but nothing lasts forever. And so our sales were not going well and, um, we were hurting. I would argue it was because TV was hurting. You know, we live and die by television. Um, because look, there's some pretty crappy magazines that came out during the attitude era. They sold really well. Why? The product was really hot. That was it. A lot Mm -hmm. of times the magazines, I thought, I thought the magazine that we did from in those days, like in the early 2000s, mid 2000s was a way better product than what they were doing in the attitude era, way better, mm-hmm. but didn't sell as well. And so Shane kind of wanted to make his mark. And the idea was floated like what they had done in a lot of other areas to bring in kind of outside people, people that were successful, but were not wrestling people. And even more than what Barry had done, because Barry was still looking for people that knew wrestling, that loved it, that were sports people. They wanted to completely remake the magazine into something like Maxim. They wanted it to be a <laughs> men's lifestyle magazine that happened to have a wrestling theme to it. Mm-hmm. So Shane was living in New York City at the time. I, I guess he probably still is. So he, had, he, he rubbed shoulders with a lot of high-powered media people. So he made contact with these with this crew of people that were from all those, I guess what they call the lad mags and all that kind of thing. And in America anyway, Mm -hmm. and they brought them in to totally remake the magazine into something different. And and so it's interesting. You mentioned a Vince interview on Bite This. 
that's the first time I've ever heard about it. I never even knew that happened. So I have to go see if I could find that video somewhere. But whatever he said in that interview, it had to just be it was just a way of justifying what they were going to do. I don't think he really knew. I don't think he probably even hadn't picked up the magazine in a long time, to be honest <laughs> with you. But it was more of Shane's thing. And, you know, I went when Bar- Barry part of the, what happened was in beginning of 2005, a year before the magazine got made over, Barry was fired. So Barry and Shane had never really seen eye to eye. They were always locking horns because, again, Barry wanted to sell magazines. Shane wanted to push the product. So they were constantly at odds over this. And Shane wanted control. And Shane just didn't know publications the way that Barry did. And eventually it just boiled over the animosity between the two of them. Barry just couldn't hold his tongue anymore, said too much, (laughs) and got himself fired. And so we were just free floating for like a year where we had no publisher. It was me as the de facto publisher without the title, without the money, just because I was the senior editorial (laughs) person and I was reporting directly to Shane McMahon. Shane McMahon in 2005 did my employee evaluation review. Okay. I still have it. I have it right here in my desk. It's in here. This, this right here is my employee (laughs) review from 2005. And I think if I go to the right page, yeah, Uh you think I'm BSing you. Were you a good employee that year? That is his signature (laughs) on my review. Yeah, this was What kind kind of feedback did you get? Um, Mainly positive. That's the thing. He was very grateful and thankful to me for kind of running the ship during that and taking over when, when something so unexpected had happened. But you see... I tried to take it to another level. I I went to see him. I set up a meeting with him and I said, look, I've been here now for five years. I know the product backwards and forwards. I have an, I have a master's degree in English. I have eight years experience as a professional writer and journalist. You know, um, I will do Barry's job for half what you were paying him. That's what I said. I said, put me in charge of publications. I'll do it. And, I, you know, I'll, I, I, I can do it. You know, I, I really felt I could. And he was very cordial about it. He was very good about it. But it, what it came down to was he just wanted his new blood to come in there. He didn't want a company guy who was an unknown like me, just some schlubby guy. He wanted something sexy, you know. So he got this guy, Tony Romando, who was like a high powered guy in the New York magazine world, like known in that world, a rock star, really, of New York magazines and brought him in and gave him the position that I wanted, which means that I was doomed right from there, right from the start. (laughs) I lasted another year after that year, a little bit more. What was the... um... A sigh of relief when you went down from two magazines back to one? Well, um, in a way, yes, because our production schedule was going to get a little easier, right? Um, and, and it was actually more than just the two magazines a month because we had so many specials. Well, I was going to ask, um, how m- when you were there, were, how many special editions did you have to knock out a year? Did it have to be a superstar profile magazine? Because you did Hogan, you did Michaels, yeah. you did Brett. Um I- I think it was like six to eight a year or something like that. It, it changed over the years. So we had WrestleMania special every year. We had the Divas special every year. Um, and we did like a poster book. 
And the other ones were basically, we had a certain amount, like we wanted to do personality driven ones. Um, and, and sometimes we try to do like other themed ones. Like we did an ECW one. It had to be something we thought was hot enough. Uh, we did the Hogan one, as you mentioned, that was the first issue I was ever given to manage as a managing editor. And it was also the first magazine we ever put out that had WWE in it instead of WWF. This is true. That, yeah. that Hogan one was, the, and I was crushed about that again, because I felt like I finally got my hands on this damn thing and we <laughs> took the name off. Like, you know, at the time, I felt like disastrous. I felt like changing the name of Coca-Cola or something, you know, I just <laughs> yeah. didn't, didn't like it at all. But um, but yeah, we did. Uh, we did an Undertaker one. We did uh, Hardy Boys. We did a lot of people. Another thing people don't remember or realize is way before Bret Hart ever came back to TV in 2010, he worked with us. We put out in 2000, I want to say four, five. We put out a Bret Hart boxed set DVD collection with his full involvement and a special magazine with his full involvement, even though he wasn't on television. It, ha it, has, my, it has my involved. favorite image of Bret ever on the cover. Like that has been used on so much merchandise. So that is my favorite picture of Bret. Sorry, I'm just interrupting tonight. No, that's a great. It was. It, I was glad to be a part of that issue because. Bret Hart was also on the short list with Freddie Blassie of the people that I wanted to meet, but I didn't think it was ever going to happen because of, you know, what was going on. But I don't know how that deal even happened. It was, I mean, it was really about the DVD set. Um, Brett, that was in the, in the era when they were working hard to buy up all those historical libraries. Mm. And so to try to monetize them. So they had bought, I guess, the Stampede Library from the Hart family somehow. And so they wanted to put out a box set. But, of course, they felt like just doing Stampede is not going to sell very well. So they would have to hang it on somebody. And Bret Hart would be the person to hang it on to try to sell it. So they hammered out this thing with Bret. And I think part of the deal was – and, again, I don't want to get into the whole thing of is Montreal a work or what. I don't know. But part yeah. of the deal from what I understood with him was he agreed to do it on the condition that he wasn't going to get roped back into going on TV and being a part of the show anymore. He was basically just like, I just want to do I'll, I'll do this DVD thing. I'll make money off of it. You'll make money off of it. And the magazine was like an offshoot of that because it was Shane's baby. So Shane was always trying to like hook into everything. So, okay, we're bringing ECW back. All right, let's do an ECW magazine. He was always doing that. It was, it was a wonderful way to have a new Bret Hart poster on the wall as well. Cause like getting a Bret Hart poster at that point, wasn't exactly, you know, the easiest thing uh, to do. It, yeah. it was, I, I've spoken to so many people about this, but that sort of 2004, 2005 period was so exciting because uh, Jax has started with the classic superstars figures um, you know, it seems like Legends as a brand, uh, you know, started and it was a way to get like an Andre the Giant figure in a store. You know, it, it, like I'll, I didn't know those that first series of figures was coming out. And then I walked past the store and then the Ultimate Warrior, Bret Hart, Andre the Giant were there. And it just it was it was really exciting as well, because, you know, admittedly, as I said before, 2004, I was starting to drift in and out a little bit. But then the past became present again and you know i guess they realized there was money in it you know i mean was it a little bit well that's the thing i mean um was there a gamble in something like 
you know, in the Legends brand, you know, because there was there was always talk of uh, action figures being made, uh, you know, before the classic superstars came out, but it was deemed that there was no money in it. And I mean, in '98, I, I don't know if you ever saw them, but there was a Freddie. We well, must have. There was a Freddie Blassie, Jimmy Snooker, Andre, and um, oh, who else? There was a set of four Legends figures, and this was like the height of the Attitude Era. Right. Um, and I'm guessing they didn't sell too well, and then it was kind of postponed. So, was do you remember there being a a moment when they were like, right, we can start doing this, we can start going ahead and promoting yeah. the past again? Yeah, and and my book got to be a part of that, and so mm-hmm. I I think I mean you must remember. I mean, there was a time when history was not acknowledged at all. Mm. So I would say probably late '80s through most of the '90s. And even into the turn of the century, there really was a, a reluctance to really dwell on the past, dwell on history. And when I first came there in 2000, I was one of the people that was pushing for it. So WWE Legends started out as an idea for a trading card set. I wanted to do a trading card set of just Legends, and it was going to be called Legends of the WWF. And my idea was to have it be, you know, everybody knows. You know, WWF has had a national and worldwide audience from the late 80s on. But people don't know, unless you're from the Northeast, about the superstars of the earlier decades. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do a, a trading card set just about them. 60s, 70s, early 80s, those people. And um, it went nowhere because at that time they were doing nothing historical. And they didn't realize there was a whole market there. And I think all that happened was enough time passed. So by the time you get to the early 2000s, you now have an entire generation of people who were kids when the WWF went national. Now they're all adults. And a lot of them have an interest in wrestling history. There's a market there. You know, uh, there's a whole audience there. There's even people, and I used to say this, there's people that don't even watch the current product that would buy your stuff if it was old school branded stuff. So they finally came around. I'm, I'm not going to take credit for convincing them. I did. But they came around and then the Legends program was born. And that is the Legends program is the main reason because I, that my book got greenlit because I turned the once they started publishing books through Simon and Schuster, which I don't I think that was around 02 or whatever, when the Blassie book came out, I proposed the WWE Legends book because they wanted to do a book every month. There it is. They wanted to do a book every single month and they were like, we're desperate for ideas. So I said, how about this? It really went nowhere. I pitched it in 03. It went nowhere until the Legends program took off. And they said, and not only that, the damn book was going to be called WWE Legends. That was a total coincidence. They were like, oh, this is great. We have a ready-made book to go with this program. And so the book got greenlit. And that was kind of an exciting time. And I think ever since then, they've been way more open to, you know, acknowledging history, making history a part of the current product in ways that they never used to do before. I'm glad they finally came around to that. It took them long enough to do it. Well, Brian, I want to thank you for uh, taking part in this episode of Hands Off the Merchandise, part one of what will be an epic two-parter, because I've got so much more to ask, you know, uh, stuff about the original Chic book that you're working on. Can't wait to delve into that. Uh, more nerdy WWE, WWF magazine trivia, which no one will remember, but uh, hopefully will blow a few minds, and uh, and the Legends book as well. Uh, there's so much I want to ask about that. So uh, where can people find you, and where can people find your work? People want to find me. Um, 
I am um, on Twitter. I am Brian R. Solomon. On Instagram, I am Brian Solomon Author. If you go on Facebook and look up Pro Wrestling FAQ, and it has its own page on there where I post a lot of wrestling stuff and stuff about the Sheik book. I also have an author's website, but it's a complicated URL. You can find it by going to my social media. So that's that's great. And links will be posted below the show. So until part two. Um, I want to thank you again, and I will see everybody next time on Hands Off the Merchandise. Bye.